Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to SFP Now. Welcome to another exciting episode of uh, SFP Now. We've um, been away for two weeks um, due to uh, various uh, technical difficulties, um, but we've got a great show lined up for you today. Um, our interview this week is, uh, I'm not doing the interview this week, which is a change. Um, we, ha- we have uh, my good friend Mark Gross. He, he did an interview with uh, the lovely, the talented and the very catty Julie Newmar. Um, who of course played Catwoman in the uh, 1960s uh, Batman series. She, act- she was actually the first actress on television to play Catwoman. Um, so we've got that coming up a little bit later on. It's a, it's a very short interview, it's a very cool little interview as well. Uh, but before we get to that, um, Raisa is joining me and we're, gonna, we're going to sort of like a review and recap the last two weeks of Dot Who, starting with uh, the episode uh, The Caretaker and uh, finishing with the episode Kill the Moon. Um, so, so we'll get right on to that. And Risa, I think, I think it's best that you, you, you kick this one off. Yes, let's start with The Caretaker. The Caretaker was um, rather interesting in that it takes place at Cole Hill School. It was designed to be the episode that justified um, having Clara change careers after season uh, seven so that she's a teacher at the school where Ian and Barbara were teaching. And I found out after reading an article, which uh, you published a link to, that uh, Ian Chesterton is actually the head of the Board of Governors of Coal Hill School, according to the sign out in front of the school that they flashed to briefly if you look at the fine print, so that's sweet. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a weird one because um, in an episode of Sarah Jane Adventures, we actually had a reference to Ian Chesterton and Barbara in which they, they, they were revealed to have never actually aged. Yes, and so I, I, think they're, I think they're basically ignoring that continuity or saying that that continuity was, was incorrect because that, that Sarah Jane had just had incorrect information or something. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, and I'm, I'm willing to accept that because it wasn't written in stone. She was just passing the information that she thought she had along. I, I don't think she thought it was ironclad information. It was just what she had found. Yeah, so. I'm, I'm kind of willing to accept that because I, I, I think the, the fact of the matter is when, when they actually did that episode, they didn't think they were ever going to get uh, William Russell to reprise the role. Uh, but that said, I don't think it actually ever occurred to them to actually ask him to reprise the role. No, I don't think it has either. And if they're going to do it, and, and I hate to be morbid, but if they're going to do it, they need to kind of do it soonish because he isn't getting any younger. Mm. And um, I, I would really like to see a full-on episode. And I don't care if it gets somewhat modelin relative to 12, even though he doesn't do modelin. I would like to see some emotional reaction to the fact that he's come full circle and, this, and that this man is in front of him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because it's, it's important. It's important. Yeah, and I think the, I think the connecting, you know, we, we were actually talking about how we were going to do this the other day because, uh, folks, we actually recorded a review of, uh, of Caretake. Well, basically, due to technical difficulties beyond our control, um, we, we just wasn't able to sort of like uh, bring bring you that review, so we decided to sort of like just recap the previous two episodes and and do things that way. And and to be honest, really, the caretaker was a uh, basically the uh, Kangara and Danny Pink uh, show, but the connecting tissue between the caretaker and the uh, and 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 Kill the Moon was the uh, character of Courtney. Yes. 
And Courtney, uh, to go back, um, was actually featured in the premiere. She's the student who, when Clara is passing out because she's holding her breath, and she's, uh, she's the, the student who, who Clara flashes back to when she's passing out, when she's holding her breath. And she, and she's also, she was also seen in the principal's office in, the, in episode two when they introduced Danny. And she was referenced in episode four, uh, the listen. So they, they were setting her up throughout. She, she wasn't just sprung on us. They were setting her up throughout. Which and, was cool. And it's kind of cool because she's kind of an interesting character. You know, she, you know, the fun, funny thing is she, she was set up and um, she came to prominence ring in, uh, in The Caretaker and uh, even more so in Kill the Moon. As in, she, she was actually the, uh, the person that was uh, most resistant in Kill the Moon to actually, um, to, to actually nuking the moon and stopping the, stopping the um, baby hatching from hatching. Yeah, she was actually the, she was actually the same one, um, which was kind of interesting because when they when they announced that they were going to have her traveling for some period of time there, I was really not happy about the notion of having a rebellious teenage character um, on the show. I mean, I, I understood the value of, of giving the Twelfth Doctor a sort of mini me who had the same sort of um, lack of social niceties, but I realized the character like that could go. Um, could be stretched thin very quickly, and I was very glad to see that she had something of an arc. And if you pay attention, the female president that uh, that Ludwig refers to is actually Courtney. Mm -hmm. She grows up to be president, and she grows up to marry the guy who um, coins the Blinovich effect, which is the the time travel effect of what happens when you meet yourself. Cool. So yeah, so they 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 actually built in one episode. They actually gave her an arc. Yeah, it was quite wonderful. Yeah, I mean, you know, when we're getting back to the caretaker, um, we we actually said that was kind of like the Danny Pink and Clara episode. It was a a little bit of a rom com. Yeah, um, I guess. Which is fine if you like rom coms. You you liked it more than I did. I I have a very low threshold for rom coms generally. I've got to be honest, Reese. I didn't like it more than you did. Um, oh. I mean, to be honest, it wasn't a very good rom com. No. You know, and that, that's, that's the thing, you know, um, I, I, I've probably got a bit more of a tolerance for rom-coms than you have, but if you, if you look at my review of it, I gave it I gave the story a 6.5, I gave the acting a 10, because mm. that's what carried out, the CGI a 9, and the incidental music a nine, an 8.5, so, and, and the total was 8.5, it's actually the lowest reviewed episode that we've done. Mm. I, I just felt like they were, it, was, it was by the numbers, the only real value it had for me was the um, vindication that I felt in the the nod to the Impossible Girl arc because in Listen you had that whole thing where the doctor says why do you need a three way mirror exactly and he mentions it twice you know once as a joke twice as a plot point and then, and yet in the caretaker she's freaking out from being pulled in all these different directions looking in the three way mirror and it's actual symbolism for not just the immediate crisis, but the fact that I, I think she's actually having impossible girl fallout. I think I think one of the reasons why she felt she could do everything was because she had done everything mm -hmm. when she when she was the impossible girl, and so she just sort of she became the ultimate overachiever, and she needs to kind of come down from that. And, and whether it's a purely psychological PTSD allegory or whether there's actual physiological fallout is yet to be seen, but there's something wrong there. Yeah, the only thing that was uh, redeeming about the uh, the caretaker for me was was basically the uh, the, the the acting the, the the interaction between Clara and Danny Pink, you know, and then Samuel Anderson as Danny Pink, you know, so like uh, and 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 the Doctor as well. I mean, the Doctor thought that Clara's boyfriend was the uh, was the guy that actually resembled um, his previous incarnation. Yeah, which that was which was funny. That was funny. And the uh, fact that they actually found a Matt Smith clone um, was kind of awesome, actually. Well, yeah, um, but the uh, w what I really liked about it was the was was actually the confrontation between the Doctor and Danny Pink. You know, the uh, the, the the whole the whole thing the Doctor doesn't like soldiers sort of thing, and 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 all of that. 
and and Danny's sort of like a reaction to the Doctor, you know, where where he's sort of like he he he, he, he uh, when he's talking to Clara, he talk he talks about the Doctor as if the Doctor is an officer, yeah, in in the army, and sort of like uh, you know he's 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 quite happy to send to send sort of like uh, the uh, <coughs> the grunts ahead of him, in order to sort of like uh, fly, fly in the face of danger. And and the whole sort of thing uh, where where Danny song like, says Clara, you know, you, you seem to jump in with both feet first without any sense of um, without any sense of self preservation whatsoever. Mm. Sort of thing. It's almost as if you you're trying to get yourself killed. And um, you know, but the, when when he's talking when he's talking to the doctor and he's relating to the doctor as an officer, it kind of reminded me of a, and I said this. Previously, it reminded me of the very first episode of Sharp, where Patrick Harper and Sharp are starting to bond. And in this particular scene, Harper warns Sharp about the officer he's serving under and says, There are two kinds of officers, sir. Kinging officers and murdering officers. Kinging officers are the poor old buggers that get you killed by mistake. Murdering officers are mad, bad old buggers that get you killed on purpose. For a country, for a religion, maybe even a flag. You see, that old Major Hogan, sir, that's what I call a murdering officer, sort of thing. Mm. And, you know, it kind of put me in mind of that. Um, and, and you know, when when you look at that, that quote, the Doctor is very much a kinging officer. He's not a murdering officer. He's a kinging officer. He, he kind of gets you killed unintentionally. Yeah, yeah. You know? and, the cl- and the classic series bore that out. Um... Which brings us to Kill the Moon. Um, and it's a nice little segue, that. <laughs> yes. Here's the thing, before we even deal with Kill the Moon. Um, Kill the Moon is one of those episodes, I think, it, it depends on whether you're a classic fan or a new fan. Because the, the frame of reference for classic fans for that episode is going to be different. New fans are going to look at that episode and go, Oh my God, the Doctor is a prick. Uh-huh. Classic classic fans are going to look at that episode and go, yes, the Doctor is a prick, but he's a prick like number seven, like number six. You know, we have, we've seen Prick Doctor before, mm-hmm. and because we've seen Prick Doctor before, we have a different frame of reference for what's going on there. Yeah, but we've got to admit here that uh, that Pete Capaldi's Doctor is an even bigger prick than Sylvester McCoy's Doctor. Yes, and, um, I'll, and I'll get to that. Um, I think there's there's more than one parallel there. Um, in terms of the episode itself, I kind of felt like I was watching a Russell T. Davies episode written for the 12th Doctor. Mm-hmm. It was awesome character development with uh, um, really weird plotting. And I just sort of, okay, I just sort of let it go. You know, the moon behaves that way because the universe has been rebooted. And that's just the way the moon behaves now, whatever. Um, the point of the episode was the character stuff. Now, the whole point of that episode is the confrontation at the end, so let's just get to that. So I, I just want to quickly point out, you know, the, the spiders in the episode, the germs, for a very, very brief period, I was actually thinking about the uh, spiders from Meta being a three. I was, very briefly, no, very, until, very they, until they were called germs. Until yeah. they called them germs, and I thought, what a cop-out. That is, I kind of, I would have actually liked some variation of the spiders from Metabilius 3. Yeah, me too, considering that, you know, they, they pretty much um, cost the uh, third Doctor a regeneration. Yes. And it was such it was such a traumatic incident that he actually required another Time Lord to intervene, to help him regenerate. Yes, yes he did. You know, so I, I I was kind of disappointed that they that they cut out there and they made yeah. it into germs. Yeah, that's yeah, but that's that's the that's the plotting issue. That's the you know your mileage will vary with just the whole logistics of it all. Um, yeah, so I kind of after a certain point, I kind of I kind of tuned out the actual logistics of the episode because I the only the only way for me to get anything out of it was just to focus on the character stuff. Mm-hmm. Um. But back to the conversation. And the character stuff was actually really, really good. It was really wonderful. Now, I think there are several levels of character stuff going on here. At least two. One is what we saw. And on the surface, Clara was absolutely right to just call 12 on his shit. Absolutely. Dead on. It needed to happen. 
it was a gorgeous scene. I loved that Capaldi was a generous enough actor to let to just let Jenna Coleman have the rant, and he just quietly reacted there. It was absolutely important, absolutely valid, and the Doctor going forward, based on spoilers I've read in various places, is going to take what she said to heart going forward. That said, I think there is a secondary level here at which 12 was operating. Mm. But it's also yeah. kind of, it's also kind of, I'm sorry to cut you off here, but it's also kind of a double standard in, in so far as where Kamara is concerned. You know, as in she says that he's her hobby and 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 to be honest i think i think uh, that last episode was uh the 12 doctors way of saying well you know you're either with me or you're not with me it's time to get your shit together and make, make up your mind the that training too. wheels are off that too because we we've been saying for a long time now that his his issue isn't simply that he needs companions he's always had those one way or another. Needs, his issue his issue is that he needs permanent companions. Which is something he's not really had in the new series. No, from, from two thousand five on, he's either had he's either had temp, he's either had temporary ones, um, or or guest companions like he's gonna have next week when he goes into the Orient Express, the um, one of the one of the other train I'm so looking forward to that. Oh God! It's, it's gonna be it's gonna be Hinchcliffe on steroids. I have been waiting for this episode all season. I I I'm, love I love anything to do with the Orient Express. I, I love the uh, I love the film Murder on the Orient Express. Um, I love the uh, I love the Agatha Christie twists on the Orient Express. I love any I, I love any murder mystery sort of thing which takes place on a train. And yes. It's also the fact that you got a mummy there. Yes. And and they're and they're they're going to make it internally logical. They're going to make it to where it makes sense. So I just want to see how they make that make sense. So it's going to be a mummy on a space train called the Orient Express, and I'm like, this can't get any better. Yeah, I mean, you know, and and also, is this mummy going to sort of like link back to Sutek, or is it going to be a, a different spin on that same theme? We'll see. We will see. But whatever it is, it's going to be awesome. And whatever it is, according to advanced reviews I've read. Um, Twelve will be feeling the sting of of, of Clara's rebukes as he's alone on this train but with his temporary companions. What what I will say for reference for the uh, for the newer fans that listen here is that uh, Sutek is the um, is is the main villain in in the classic series story called Pyramids and Mars. Now I recommend that if you're a new fan uh, that wants to sort of go back in 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 time to sort of like revisit some of the older episodes that you've not seen before, uh, but you try Pyramids and Mars because it is an absolute classic episode. It's a ringing episode. One of my favorites, and I actually watched it in preparation for Kill the Moon, um, because I got I got an impression from the advanced spoilers I was reading and the advanced reviews I was reading that this was this episode was going to be his walk in eternity moment in uh, Pyramids of Mars. Um, it's a it's a it's a Fourth Doctor Sarah Jane episode, and Bor and Sarah Jane have this conversation where he says, um, you know, Earth Earth is not my home. And, and 12 echoes that when he says to Clara, Earth is not my home. But the rest of that conversation is more important because he says, uh, he says Earth is, is uh, not my home. I'm a, I'm a time lord. And, and Sarah Jane says, oh, I know you're a time lord. No, no, you don't understand the implications. I'm not a human being. I walk in eternity. Mm-hmm. And... That is a direct nod to um, Kill the Moon because you actually have a doctor who's walking in eternity. He's sitting there talking about the timelines and, and, and all of this stuff. And, you, and you, you get a real glimpse of the fact that this part of the reason he is a prick is that this is the more alien doctor. Four was not user-friendly. Yeah, he's kind of the alien doctor that we've not had since the series returned. Yeah. And you know, I'm kind of glad to see him back. I think I think the closest the new series had to him before before the uh, the new Doctor came was um, maybe Matt Smith. Maybe Matt Smith a little bit with with Eccleston because um, you you, got, you kind of got the sense that Eccleston did not have people skills, mm-hmm. and and it wasn't just the PTSD; it was that he was also an alien a, a little bit. But uh, you kind of got it with Matt Smith, but you're really getting it with Capaldi. 
and um, it's freaking a lot of the new fans out. They don't they don't know what to do. I'm I'm reading fan reaction to Capaldi generally, and a lot of them are just really freaking out right now. I'm not gonna watch this next time. You're not fair. You're not sexy yeah. at all. Yeah, of course, a lot of them are also absolutely absolutely adoring him. Um, and do think he's sexy. There's, there's no middle ground. He's either he's either brilliant or trash. Um, it's very strange. But uh, I yeah, think it's, I, I think we, it's really cool that we've got a doctor that can do that now. Yes. And and I think it's really brave of 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 the BBC and 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 Stephen Moffat to actually go in this direction. Yes, because we needed a doctor who was a bastard. And and I, and, also, and, I, and I want to just say this as as a as an aside. I don't care how, how much of a bastard 12 is. Um, I, I will take any complaints about bad behavior from modern doctors, from the new fans who can't cope, and I will raise them the sixth doctor strangling Perry in a post-regenerative psychotic episode. Mm -hmm. um, nothing will top that for just absolute terror and dysfunction. <laughs> yeah, but you got you got to admit, with such an awful American accent that uh, that, that that was put on with Perry, she kind of deserves strangling. I mean, come on. It's true. It's true. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, but, you know but, that that was kind of like almost as bad as Dick Van Dyke trying to do a Cockney accent. Come on. Yeah, actually, actually, uh, Nicola Bryant's uh, American accent for the Big Finish audios has improved. Has I've it? been listening. I've been listening to some of them, and she's gotten better. All right. Well, that, that that's something. <laughs> yeah. Um, where was I? Okay. Yes. First level, he is a dick, and he needs to get the he needs to get the edges knocked off his personality. He needs a bedside manner. All valid. All true. And we will see that as the rest of the arc progresses. And this was absolutely necessary. Secondary level, and here's where being a classic fan I think is very important. And I think this is and this and I need to go back to the premiere. And I'm just going to go through this. In the premiere, the 12th Doctor said, why this face? What am I trying to remind myself of? Now, at the meta level, two other characters have been played by Peter Capaldi. One was Caecilius in, in Fires of Pompeii, and, and one, one was Frobisher in Torchwood. Now, what those two characters had in common thematically, apart from the fact that they were played by the same actor, was that they were both family men. One, Caecilius, saved his family by literally saving them, by having the doctor literally save them. And the other saved them by killing them. Mm -hmm. but, but they were both family men. They were flip sides of the same coin, family men who were trying desperately to save their families in these extreme circumstances. Now, when Eleven, I think what's going to happen is we're going to find out that Eleven was spotting the fact that Clara was having whatever degree of impossible girl fallout that she was having. And as he was going to regenerate, he was thinking, I have to save my family, I have to save my family, I have to save my family. His family at that point was Clara. His family is the companion at the time. Now, he regenerates into Capaldi, a man who has the face of two different guys who were struggling to save their families. And he also has a Scottish accent, and that's because uh, Eleven spent all those years listening to the woman who became his mother-in-law, who was Scottish. And so it all translates into, I have to save my family, I have to save my family, I have to save my family. He, that was his last conscious thought as he went out, and his first conscious thought as he looked into the face of Clara as 12. And, and also, when you, when you think about it now, it kind of puts that phone call into contest as well. Yes. He um, wasn't just telling Clara to be brave and to just ride it out and, because, and to accept change. He needed to keep Clara with 12 because Clara was not okay and 12 needed to help her. And, and and she needed to help. She needed to help twelve. And she needed to help twelve. And and that and that row at the end was not only about her calling him out. It was about him. And and here's and here's where the classic series comes in. And the seventh Doctor parallel. That entire episode, Kill the Moon. I got a Curse of Fenric parallel with the seventh mm -hmm. Doctor and Ace. I did as well. Yeah. I felt like the entire. I felt like. Whatever, whatever was legitimately going on with the Doctor and his personality clashes on the surface, which were valid, there was a secondary level of the Doctor knew he was a prick, and like the Seventh Doctor, he was using his more negative character aspects as a tool 
to irritate and challenge Clara because he knew that by irritating and challenging Clara, as he's done from the premiere on, he was forcing her to utilize her entire personality matrix, her entire moral matrix, and actually remain or try to remain a whole person after all that fracturing. Mm -hmm. I, I think what's happening is Eleven knew that there was some kind of, maybe even literal fracturing damage. Passed that on to Twelve, and he has been systematically dealing with it. And I think there's even a foreshadowing of it in episode three, Robot of Mars. That's played as the straight-up light comedy episode, but the one parallel between it and, and Kill the Moon is choice. Mm -hmm. He says to Clara, it's your choice. Where do you want to go? And I think her choice, he was using her choice then, because if you go back to that scene where he's asking her for her choice, he's, he's drawing on the chalkboard the whole time he's talking to her. His and back is to her. And, think, she's, and he's drawing on the chalkboard. I think in the third episode, he was thinking of Robot Sherwood. Yes. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say that? Did you, I say that? Okay, said, I'm sorry. You said Robot of Mars. <laughs> okay. Okay. Robot of Sherwood. Um, he, he, was talking, he was talking to her with his back to her with, with the chalkboard. And it kind of it kind of led me back to that, that point where Eleven was talking to Amy and looking at back and forth and back and forth and, and registering the clone and registering her pregnancy and registering the clone and registering her pregnancy. Exactly, yeah. I kind of just felt like it was a structural parallel there. So I think I think that that, that choice in the third episode was a, a good flip side choice parallel to the more negatively aspected choice parallel of of this episode. I think he's been testing her the whole time. I think this entire arc for for her relating to him has been a giant Kobayashi Maru sort of test to keep her personality intact because it's obviously fracturing. Mm -hmm. and, and there have been and there's been foreshadowing and symbolism and parallels for that all throughout. And I, I plan to do an, an essay on the on the topic uh, after episode ten going into the uh, going into the two episode finale because there's a, just a ton of stuff. There is a ton of stuff as well. I mean, you know, when you're talking about Capaldi's manipulation of Clara, um, if you, when you look at it, Capaldi, you know, Twelfth Doctor's manipulation of Clara is actually really, 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 really harsh in comparison to the Seventh Doctor's manipulation of Ace. Yes, but I also think part of that is because a it's a modern series and they could they could take they could afford to dial it up a notch on the meta level. But the other issue is I think is I think Clara actually just has a bigger problem. Mm -hmm. I think I think eleven going into twelve is like, holy crap, this girl who basically killed herself for my sake by getting herself into a million different versions of herself is is damaged and I have to help her and she's and she's damaged herself in a way that there is no um, precedent for. There's no treatment program for. There's no hospital to take her to. I am literally on my own in this box with this girl who's damaged. What the hell do I do? And I think apart from whatever valid confrontations they have at the surface level because the doctor needs to develop a bedside manner, the underlying thing is he's panicking because his bestest friend in all the world currently is just flat out not okay, and he's and he's justifying everything that he's doing um, by this will keep her alive, this will keep her, this will keep her sound. I don't care if she hates me. In the end, she can go off in the sunset with her with her Danny Pink, and I will have done my job. The ends justify the means. Yeah. So so basically, um, in in so, so, some sort of way, uh, the twelfth Doctor is trying to uh, completely and utterly push Clara out. In, in order to try and save her, so she can so like have an ordinary life. Yes, uh, she yeah she um the, the degree of damage is yet to be determined, and that will probably be that will probably be revealed in whatever exposition dump we get toward the end. Um, the specifics probably don't even matter. The underlying the underlying issue is that there is damage, and his entire thing is uh, he's trying to repair it. Because if you, if you look at his reaction to that fallout scene in Kill the Moon at the very end, it wasn't, it wasn't the reaction of a man who was completely surprised by what he was seeing. It was, a, it was a, the reaction of a man who was surprised by the degree of what he was seeing. He was reacting like he was saying, oh my God, I did my job too well. It's worse than I thought. It's worse than I thought. You know, it's, um, it's, it's, it's really, you know, 
I've got a feeling that uh, a lot of the hardcore fans are going to be re-watching this season uh, a good couple of times when it's off the air. Yeah, because the, the one issue I've had with the Impossible Girl arc is that it's sort of the arc, it's, sort of, it was the, it's the arc by implication. It's there, but it's not there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's on purpose. I think that's because, um, I, think, I think that's Moffat being Moffat. He wants to be able to surprise us and yet logically be able to point everything out and say, I wasn't cheating, look, it's all valid. And I think he's, he, he wants to sort of have his cake and eat it too by making most of Clara's arc subtext, which works up to a point. Um, it could be problematic, depending on how much longer he wants to, to yank this out. But, uh, but it's, it's interesting because it, it is all there. It is all there. He is not cheating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's actually been, you know, if you look at how the series started, it kind of started on a bit of a weak note. Yeah. With, with the, uh, you know, with the opening episode, although it was great to see Strats and the other characters go. And we had yeah. a bit of a dipping form with Caretaker. Yes. And it kind of bounced right back at, you know, I, 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 I have to say that I think Kill the Moon is the strongest episode that's that's been on so far. It, it, it is the strongest episode that's been on so far. Um, again, mileage will vary. A lot of people just slagged it because they just they just couldn't deal with the the wonky science and the setup, mm-hmm. which I can I, I can understand. I can understand if you if you're not if you if you're not in the brain space for that kind of storytelling, it can be extremely jarring. Yeah, you know, the thing is, you know, I I, I always say this. Uh, to me, Doctor Who has always been more on the side of science fiction fantasy than it has been of pure science fiction. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean so I mean, they had Spitfires in space for God's sake. So yeah, I'm I'm not I'm not expecting I'm not expecting it to be scientifically accurate. You know that that scientific scientific accuracy is really in the realm of Star Trek. But even Star Trek never always got it right. I mean, come on. No, no. You know, it's, uh, I just you know at the at the end of the day, it's a TV show. It's um it's a bit of fun, and I think to be honest, the uh, people when they're saying, "Oh, it's not scientifically accurate," they're just taking it way way too seriously. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you know, I I just say get over yourselves. You know, it's a if it's a good story. You know, if it's if it's if it's a, it's a pretty good story and it and and it kind of gets you involved. You know, try try and go in there with no expectations and forget all you know about science and just kind of like uh, try try and see it through the eyes of a child. Yes, is what I always say. Yes. You know, and um, and if you try and see it that way, you're probably going to get a lot more out of it than you are if you if you're sort of like looking for looking for fault yes. with it from 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 the get go. Mm-hmm. Um, although to be honest, when when I do get a crap episode, I'm 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 always the first to admit it, am I? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, this 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 episode uh, was really divisive, partly because of the wonky science, partly because a lot of people saw the whole thing with the baby as a um, pro-choice, pro-life allegory, mm-hmm. and really didn't, didn't appreciate that. Um, you know, I just there were there were things that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Mm. I just enjoyed the fact that Courtney was the sanest person in the room. She she was the sanest person in the room, which when you consider how she started out as as one of the brattiest people in the room is, is saying a lot in terms of what they accomplished with very few episodes with her. Because I've got to go admit, in the uh, in the caretaker I didn't really care too much for her. I, just I didn't like, I, I didn't either. To, I wanted uh, to give oh her my a god, slap, but no, I in, a little bit her goes a long way. In, in Kill the Moon, she, I really warmed to her because so yes. like, she just seemed to be the most human, pers- the, the most humane element in, 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 you know, amongst those four characters. And you kind of like, uh, you kind of warmed to that. And um, it, was, uh, it, was just, it was just really well written. And uh, the actress who played Cardi did a really good job of that. Yes, she did. You know? um, all the more so when you consider that she really is a teenager. Mm-hmm. She is actually that age. So. Yeah, which, which is kind of funny because Jenna Coleman, um, a, a good couple of years back, uh, I mean, Jenna Coleman's what, 28 now? Yeah, 28. Yeah, about four years ago when she was 24, she was playing a 16-year-old in a TV show called Waterloo Road. Wow. <laughs> when she was 24. <laughs> 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 you know, so, and and, um, and and the funny thing about that is the rest of the cast were teenagers. Oh, wow. Um, with the exception of the actors that were playing the teachers. So... So she's got like a twenty-four-year-old playing a sixteen-year-old, a bunch um, amongst a bunch of fourteen and sixteen-year-olds. Wow! <laughs> so, 
Um, but it, it just goes goes to show you, doesn't it? Um, but I, I think uh, I think we kind of covered pretty much most bases now, haven't we, Ring? Yeah, we have. You know, yeah. the, you know, there's a lot to discuss, but I think I think we're probably going to have even more to discuss by the by by the tail end of the next episode. Yes, I do so. too. I will say, just in terms of structure, from what I'm reading, um, next episode, the Orient Express will be the Doctor without Clara. The following episode will be Clara without the Doctor. Mm-hmm. Episode ten will be them coming together, and then episodes eleven and twelve will be the two part finale where we find out whatever it is we find out. Yeah, I'm just wondering, um, are they going to kill off Clara and is the Doctor going to end up travelling with Danny Pink? Not if they kill off Clara. Danny, Danny, Danny will take a gun to him. Mm. Danny will probably invent a time machine and stalk him through time and space. Yes. <laughs> um, but it's, it's just sort of like, uh, it, there's all sorts of questions that are going through my mind. You know, if, like for example, is, is Missy Clara? You're not going to like my theory. I've, I've written to you about it. I know, I know that you don't want Missy to be the master, but I think Missy is going to be the master. And I think structurally what we're going to find, how it's going to dovetail with the um, impossible girl, is that while Clara was the impossible girl, Missy, who was the master, was noticing this wackadoo little human friend of his frenemy wandering through his frenemy's timeline. And he just sort of bit watched, bemused as this, uh, as this, little, as this little girl saved his frenemy by splitting herself into a million pieces and we're going to get a flashback of that you know as a, as a sort of reverse of all of the cgi of the various doctors in the name of the doctor we're going to get a cgi um, montage of all the different incarnations of the master watching all of this so we can sort of get it in reverse and as we see all of the different masters it's going to culminate in in uh in um John Sims' master becoming Missy. Oh God, I hope you're wrong. It, it just it just seems to me that that's structurally and thematically where this is going. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Mm. But just it just it feels right in terms of what we're being given and in terms of what we've seen from Moffat up to now. I, I'm kind of hoping you're wrong. I mean, then again, Moffat could actually could actually surprise us both and have brought back the Rani. Yes. Yes. And you know, it kind of in in a way it kind of made more sense if it was a Rani. Yeah, but then. It, it it doesn't jeopardize my theory anyway, because because Ronnie or Master, they're both they're both time lords, and that would explain you know the, that would explain uh, how she knew about Clara in 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 the time stream and how she was able to give Clara the doctor's number when Clara called in for the computer repair. In and fact, Reese, it actually makes more sense for it to be Ronnie. How's uh, that? Well, for one, the master, um, he's all about conquest and ruining. That's true. So the Ran is all about science and connecting. And what is Missy doing? She's kind of connecting all these She's people. collecting, yes. She's connecting all these people. So it actually makes more sense uh, thematically for it, be, for it to be the Ran, because, uh, you know, the Ran, because connecting and the scientific experiments is more within the Ran's modus operandi. I agree with you there. The one reason I might... The one reason I can counter with is that if it is the Ronnie, it seems to me that they would need more than the two episodes of the finale to introduce a Time Lord they've never met before. Well, the new fans have never met before. That's true. And, and to be honest, the old fans only really got two episodes of the Ronnie, so it's, you know, it's probably much easier for them to introduce a Rani than it ever would have been for them to have introduced a master. This is true. This is true. But then that, ex- then that begs the question, why is she calling herself Missy? I mean, the meta answer is if she called herself Ronnie, the old, the classic fans would instantly know what was going on. But from a, from a narrative standpoint, the fact that she's calling herself Missy has to be explained. So if she isn't the master, I need that explained. Yeah, well, well true. But, you know, the fact, the fact of the matter is if, if she called herself Rani, it kind of gives the entire plot away, doesn't it? Yeah, true. And uh, Moffat's, Moffat's kind of like about slowly but surely teasing stuff out. Yeah. You know, um, and, and Missy um, Missy and Master, that's too literal for Moffat. Yeah, true. It would have been way, it way too literal. It would have been on, on par for Russell T. Davies, but you're right, it's too literal for Moffat. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, we could both be wrong and it could be something entirely different. Yes, yes. But whatever it is, it's something that they have to explain within relatively few episodes because, as I've said in previous podcasts, um, there looks like they're going to save the, the majority of the uh, exposition for one big 
blow out in the last three episodes or so. So yeah, which is you know, which is both a good and a bad thing. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, I think I think uh, to be honest, they could have evened it out more amongst the, among the episodes because. The season's been kind of slow. It has. It has. In in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. And um, I think it ends in November because Merlin, because the new the new series of Atlanta starts on November fifteenth. I think. Yes. Yeah. It follows. It follows right after right after Doctor Who. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and by the way, whatever is going on with Clara, she does appear in the Christmas special. That's been confirmed. Okay. Well, that's uh, that's that's cool to know. Um. Anyway, I think that kind of brings us to a, to an end officially now. Uh, so now it's kind of time for um, for, for uh, my my good friend Mark Gross to take over, and um, and he's going to be interviewing uh, the irrepressible the cat or, or the catty Julie. Uh, Meow. <laughs> so so um, I'm going to pass it over to Mark. <laughs> Miss Julie Newmar, talking about the role in Catwoman. You were the original Catwoman, and my God, Star Trek, you did an episode of Star Trek. You've done so much, but just being the Catwoman has got to be the rewarding thing because no one on the planet can say they were the original, and you are it. I think the costume fit. (laughs) We all know it fit very well. Yes, indeed. You looked wonderful. You could still wear that right now. Probably. Yes. Yes, indeed. But I can't. It's in the Smithsonian Museum. It is in the Smithsonian. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yes, indeed. Oh, my God. But you, my, your career, my, it's a billion questions to go in six more minutes. But your, your fans love you. You're sitting at your table signing. You've had such a wonderful career. For you, what is one of your favorite roles? Mm, you know, I did a series called The Living Doll. Yeah, yes. In which Bob I played Cummings. a robot. Right. It was a difficult role, and therefore, well, actors like things that challenge them. Yes, ma'am. You don't know how you're going to make it work, but sure. But you just do. Yes, yes. Yes. You were great in that. I was a kid watching that, but I watched it, My uh, Living Doll, and yeah, Robert Cummings and you. They have a few of those films, about 11 of them. They're now on discs. You you can find them. Oh, there are, and a lot of people are selling them here. A lot of the dealers have a lot of things that you were in so mm-hmm. people could purchase them and have you sign it. Well, I've asked people to give me them, you know, not give me. Sure. I trade them or sure. give them something else. Or, sure. Um, Your autograph. But people, they, go, they Google these things and um, come up with the darndest things. They do. They yes. really do. It's so wonderful. Technology, because I, I met you at DragonCon in 1999, and we did a great interview, and there was no Google or nothing like that. You were actually just talking about the Internet then. I remember in that interview, you talked really? a little about the Internet, how it was just going to go, and you're going to be able to find anything. She was right. <laughs> oh, I live on the Internet. That's my stage What do you now. like to do on the Internet? What do you like? What sites do you like? Um... Every kind of information. Yes, ma'am. And the technology is so good. And uh, I think it's saved my life. Yeah, yes, yes. There's so much out there. There's so much I can do. It really is. There's... The audience is extraordinary. Yeah. Well, as are your fans. You've got a great lineup. How mm-hmm. is it for you going to different shows and meeting your fans close up and the things that they're bringing you? How, how does it make that f- you feel? This is the best thing of all. It's just people telling you they love you all day long. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. I tell you, I haven't eaten in two days, but meeting people and hearing their stories and what they do and where they've come from or... Um, just their stories. It's the most rewarding of all. Yes, it's ma'am. food. It yes, is ma'am. food. It is. It does yes. feed your soul. It, it and is. it's great because you have a great soul. You're very personable with every single person that comes to you. And you reminisce and you sign for them. And that's very important. When you think how far they've driven or how long they've been standing in line or I can just be in the, I can almost be in their own bodies in sure. a sense and 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 you, you see the light in people's eyes and and you you just read them in this sweet energy oh i know and you've oh. got that with them as well you share that 
No, it's given to me. I know. Um, I, I mean, see I you say with thank the people, you but, and everything, but yes, but you're you are so wonderful with them. And mm-hmm. I, I tell you, just the career that you've had, so much that you've done. Um, is there anything that you think fans may not know about your role as Catwoman? Is there anything that you could share with us that maybe nobody knows yet, or something that hardly anybody knows that you've not done in an interview? No, but there is a wonderful scene. It's it's the seduction scene of Adam West or Batman. Batman. And um, it was something that was shot at 8 o'clock at night. And when the producer sees you going past 8 o'clock at night, he has a heart attack oh. because <laughs> it costs him two, two, two times as much. Three, I don't oh, know. because you're going over the, yeah. They call it golden time. <laughs> so what I did was, and it was a long scene. You can see it on YouTube somewhere. Uh I choreographed it. Wow. There was stairs and steps and sofas and, sure. and and all kinds of things to kind of maneuver around. Yes. So I set it all up and I said to the director, just follow me and we'll get it done. We're out and goodbye. And sure enough, one take, over. <laughs> well, I saved the money. Yes. Oh, yes, you yeah. did. And just choreographed was the word you used because you are yeah. a dancer. You've been so elegant in so many roles. How was that with Seven Brides for Seven Brothers? That was wonderful. You were so wonderful in that. Oh. I was also a virgin. <laughs> but I was 18. Right. I mean, and it was that kind of a film. And we did ballet and um, Michael Kidd, the great choreographer, and yes. a wonderful cast. And Seven Brides for Seven Brothers broke all the records at the Radio sure. City Music Hall. Yes, it did. So it's a beloved film that's uh, been become a classic. Yes. It's now 50 years old. Yes, indeed. Um, so it's, yes. it's nice you to be involved in that. Um, oh, good, you were great. Good things. Yes. And for you, privately, downtime, off time, what does Julie like to do? What do you enjoy? Well, people are collecting your autograph. Are you a collector of anything? No, I don't. <laughs> I don't collect autographs at all. <laughs> what what I do, uh, because, I don't know, I'm in the beauty business, sure. so to speak, and I love gardening. Ah. And I think uh, choreographers go to their gardens to die, <laughs> or they create all these You're at home plants in the garden. and shapes and colors and everything, and I have the most beautiful garden in Los Angeles. I believe in the that. city. I believe but that. But I have the most beautiful garden this side of the Mississippi. <laughs> I do believe that. That's True. wonderful. And you know what? I have a rose named after me. Really? And a begonia. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. And, a, and an iris will, will, will be named after me. I have one other flower. Mm, oh. Daylily. They're fantastic. Isn't that nice? Oh, that's so good. See? Now, will you be coming out doing more shows and uh, signing for fans? And we just saw you with the Batmobile up there, so well, you look wonderful. Will I it. be coming out if you ask me? Ah, she will come. If you ask her, she will come. I will be there. Outstanding. Is there anything that you would like to say to uh, my readers and fans that are that are going to see this about uh, just your career as a whole? Because it's just so incredible. And anything that you'd like to parlay on anybody? Well, it's very easy to reach me if you, julienewmar.com. Julienewmar.com. Or just go in the on my Facebook page. I have over 100,000 followers. My God. But it. It, it's so vibrant. It's so interesting. It's people they give yeah. you their opinions about everything. Yeah. Well, you say I you love, love the internet, oh, so you I can. That's immediate feedback for you right there. Yeah. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. I, I like being in the current. Yeah. Oh, that's mm-hmm. that's wonderful. That's wonderful. We really appreciate you doing an interview here at the Mid Atlantic Nostalgia Con, oh. and we just will follow you everywhere. I'm going to go home with her, or she's going to come home with me. I don't know. My wife might not. You're going like to come that. home with me. I'm going to go home with mm-hmm. her. But we we really thank you for thank being you. a wonderful woman and such a beautiful career. You've had such a great career. I have indeed. Thank you. You really for do. Thank you so much, Miss Julie Newmar. You're wonderful. Thank you. Mark Rose, Julie Newmar. Hey, this is Crazy Joe. And this is Dave, host of Megapodzilla. 
radioactive robot lizard, but with horn-rimmed glasses and a pocket protector. <laughs> That's nerdy. We're on the rampage, laying waste to the geek landscape. We'll talk movies, TV, comics, toys, video games, and sometimes we talk turkey. Don't you mean chicken? <laughs> That's right. So check us out at Megapodzilla.com. We're also available on iTunes and the Zoom Marketplace. Aw, yeah. Remember when science fiction drama envisioned stories that were happening where no one had gone before? Discovering and exploring other worlds far, far away. While many of these series and films became cult classics, somewhere along the way, this genre got lost. Imagine if there was a place where you could go watch exciting new space opera series made specifically for the niche audience that you are. Imagine if this place was conducted by a team as passionate as you about science fiction and who would use all their background experience to make sure you get the best entertainment possible. SOS is a not-for-profit independent production facility that brings together writers, special effects wizards, and other creative talent from around the world who've worked on some of the most recognizable and respected science fiction franchises. So throw away your remote control. And get real control by joining the Space Opera Society right now. With as little as $1, you can change the future of entertainment today. For more information, please visit our website. Which is, of course, spaceoperasociety.com. Where all your questions will be answered in our frequently asked questions page. And don't miss our short video presentation from some of our Space Opera series in development. I'm going to step off the limb. That's one small step for man. Hey everybody, this is Nick Tarabay, uh, Asher and uh, Spartacus got to the arena, Spartacus blood and sand, and uh, I'm here at SFP now, keep listening and keep watching, thank you so much. And that wraps it up about wraps it up for this week. Um, I'd like to uh, thank Risa for joining me, as always, and I'd like to also thank Mark Gross for um, allowing us to uh, use his uh, fantastic uh, interview with Junior Newmar. Um, we're we're hoping to actually run more of Mark's stuff um, over the coming weeks, uh, and and sort of squeeze it in between any interviews that that myself that that I myself do as well. So, uh, but for now, that's it for this week, and um, hope you enjoy all enjoy the show, and um, I hope you all join us again next week. Bye for now.